0: Okay, we're going to look in Psalm 12 verse 6 and 7 there. <clears throat> I'll read it. I'm going to read both verses. And the second time we'll read it together, okay? I'll read Psalm 12 verse 6 and 7. And then the second time we'll read it together. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver, tried in a furnace of earth, purified 7 times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation Forever, Let's read that together, Psalm 12, 6, and 7 begin. The words of the Lord are pure words, as silver tried in a furnace of earth, purified seven times. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord, thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. God talks about preserving two things that uh, stand out right now in my mind. He said he'll preserve his words forever and he'll preserve his people forever. He says in John chapter 10, verse 27 and 28, he says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. God said, My words that I state and that I give to this world, they're never going to perish. And the people that that trust me as Savior, they're never going to perish. And tonight we're talking about, we have in the last several Wednesday nights, just the discerning the Scripture translation issue. I don't like spending, honestly, I don't like spending a lot of time on this issue, but I have to occasionally just to kind of get us to think, why do we have the Bible and why do we choose the translation we choose? And, and uh, what's, what's the, how do we view all the multiplicity of translations that are out there right now? And it's good for us to ask why. And so tonight, we're going to look at some things again, and we're going to move along. We've been talking about the history of the English Bible, and we talked about the history of how the King James Bible came to be, and, and, and we're reflecting on what the Scripture says as we go along. And one of the things that I've noticed as I think about uh, the King James translation uh, is that it's excellent, and um, it's done in an excellent way, and I don't see any errors in it, and I'm happy for that. And to me, that's an echo of God's keeping His promise— at least in a secondary way, through the English language. God promised He'd keep all of it. He said He'd keep His words. And it's primarily, we can say it's primarily through access to, people can access the Hebrew manuscript, the Hebrew text, that hardly not not very many of us can read and there's access to a greek text a reliable greek text that not very many of us can read but we can know that god spoke in these originally these two languages and those are kind of the mother languages that a lot of the translations that should really should come from and in in a secondary way i see that he's preserved his word in a remarkable way in the translation that we use as a standard for our church it's amazing even though the language is not exactly how we speak day to day it's very crisp and precise so let's talk about that tonight. Discerning the scripture translation issues. Can I? Let me do this. Uh, let's see, Christian, Adam, do this for me real quick. I'm just doing this impromptu. Stack these chairs right there on those chairs right behind it, because I think I want to stand on the other side there. Just stack them right behind there. <clears throat> there are so. I mean, you got a few sample Bibles here. Some of them might be books. It's a little blurry. There are so many Bible translations out there, uh, especially in English. And again, I want to remind you and I as American Christians in this day and age of being constantly marketed for something. The reason there's so many translations is because we're constantly being marketed for another thing, for a Bible. And uh, it, it, it wasn't uh, this way years ago, but we're constantly being marketed. They're always wanting you to change your style. I mean, like I've said before, this might already be out of style. I don't know. I guess pleats, you're not supposed to have pleats. I don't know. And then I'm supposed to, I do have, most of my pants are flat. My wife likes the flat kind. But you know what? In three years, they're going to be like, dude, that's so old. Why are you wearing without pleats? You're supposed to have whatever, a bow on it. I don't know. It's always, the, the styles are changing. They're trying to market you to get the next thing, get the next thing. And it carries over into Christian products or even the Bible. Uh, so here, let's talk about this. All right, real quick, we're talking real quick history review of the English Bible. The first full English Bible to be translated was from a man named John Wycliffe. And he did it in the 1300s. And it was ground shaking. Who would ever try to dare put God's word into English for common people to read? They thought, that's, that's how could you ever do that? He thought people should be able to read the Bible in their own language. He did it. The downside is his translation was a translation of a translation. He translated from an existing translation that was already Latin, and it wasn't that good anyways, but it still helped many English-speaking people. Uh, then the next ground-shaking one was William Tyndale. He got through a few books in the Old Testament, got through the whole New Testament, and then they caught him, and he was he was strangled and killed because the Church of England and other high church people didn't think that this would, that he should be translating the Bible and putting it in the common people's language. They need to keep it in Latin. People need to learn the Latin. And, uh, and then after him, a few translations were done after him, English translations in the 16 in the 1500s. A few more translations were done. We'll skip those real quick. The next major one that really had a lot of effect was called the Geneva Bible in 1560. It was translated by some English colonists who fled who fled England because they had a new Catholic queen who was about to stamp out all these Protestants and and people who wanted to uh, protest the Catholic Church, and they fled to Switzerland and Europe, and they translated this Bible, this Bible, this Geneva Bible. It reads a lot like what we have, um, but it was used by pilgrims John Knox in Scotland, Shakespeare, and John Bunyan. This was the first English Bible to use both chapter and verse divisions. And then then it came to the King James Version. The reason I'm telling you, I'm backing up, I want you to see how that this just didn't happen overnight. You know, there was, there was John Wycliffe who broke the ground on trying to get an English Bible for people, and then during those 1500s of that, uh, at least the Protestant Reformation, you see several translations, and it culminates to what I think is the best one there's ever that there's been since. It began in 1604 with 54 scholars. Some of the scholars died before it was done. They divided into six groups they, they, they had respect for the previous translations. What they said was they're not trying to necessarily make a brand new translation, but to make a good one better. And it became the most influential English Bible even till today. And notice what the, this website, history.com says. It's not a Christian website, but they recognize even now, more than four centuries after its publication, the King James Bible remains the most famous translation in history and one of the most printed books ever. So let's talk about that. Uh, A couple quick things again by way of review. Just a sample of these translators that were uh, one of those 56, or four of those 56. These guys were no green, fresh, out of their law school or seminary. These guys were uh, well qualified in their learning of the Bible and of languages. This man, Lancelot Andrews, they... Uh, they complimented him by saying he could have served as an intemper- interpreter general at the Tower of Babel. Miles Smith, one of the translators, was called the Walking Library. John Boys, one of the King James translators, said at six, age six he could read and write Hebrew elegantly as a six-year-old. I'm just trying to get Grant to memorize a couple verses tonight <laughs> and to read basic stuff, you know. Uh, if, I, I won't be sad if he doesn't get to the Hebrew. It's okay. I just want him to speak English well. Uh, this guy, Thomas Holland, was considered a prodigy in all branches of literature. Just a little sample of these translators, their approach. Um, well, I'm going to skip through some of this. They used the, use the Greek and Hebrew text. They compared with other translations. Took three years translating, three years reviewing, nine months to prepare for print. Some people have often said, and I've mentioned this last one, say, you know, your Bibles, even your King James Bible has been changed and edited many, many times. Well, what they're really saying, they're probably trying to intimidate you, but really what's happened is there was the font. This is what it would read like in 1611. That's really kind of a hard-to-read font, isn't it? And even some of the spelling. So uh, later on, uh, they changed the font in a lot of the Bibles, not all of them, but the spelling was still different. But the essential translation is the same. For God so loved the world. Here's John 3.16. It reads the same. And then our modern uh, print Font and spelling of a King James translation is what we would expect. Okay, yeah, I recognize that font and I recognize that spelling. But the essential translation has really hasn't changed. Um, so if somebody says there's been thousands of changes done, it's you can nod and say, yeah, I know, but it really wasn't. It wasn't substantial like what you see in the difference between this and another new translation. So here's what I want to talk about. Okay. Why, So as a summary, why use the King James Version? Let's kind of summarize this. Why should we use this? And I'm just telling you, I'm being honest with you as a pastor. I think you should. I think it's the best one out there. I don't think there's errors there. I think this is the best. And I want to show you some weak reasons that some people say they use it. I want to give you some strong reasons. Weak reasons. seeing this pillar sitting on this concrete and this footer and that's just cracking Some people have reasons for doing things, and it's so weak when you test it under the pressure of some logic. And sometimes even we Bible believers can have some weak reasons. Here's a couple of them, and please, this is your advice here as a pastor. These are weak reasons for using it. Don't say, well, that's what we've always used. Why do you use the King James Version? Well, that's what we've always used. That's why we've always done it that way. Well, what if your Mormon friend used that logic? On his, You say, why do you go to the Mormon church? Well, I've just always, my family's always been that. Well, you shouldn't do it. It's wrong. Yeah, but we've always been that. Well, what if they use that logic? You know, you know the, the Pharisees got upset at Jesus because he didn't do certain traditions that they always did. So don't do it just because it's tradition. It does have a strong tradition, but that's not the strongest reason. Don't say, well, we've always, we've always that's what we've always used, and, and so therefore uh, I'm going to do that. Um, it must be tested. By the way, anything should be tested on its own merit whether it's been traditional or not. All right? The question is, really, is it accurate whether I've been using it all the whole time or not? Some people have grown up using a certain um, or doing a certain kind of tradition in their church doesn't mean it's right. So you got to test it. Oops, let me go back up here. All right. I like how it I like how it sounds. I kind of like how it sounds, too. But again, what if a Mormon says, I've had him say stuff like this. You know, you get, I get talking to a Mormon guy, and I'm not here to beat up on Mormons. I have grew up around them. And, you know. But I say, we get talking about the Bible and Christ, and I kind of get them cornered a little bit on some logic and on some Scripture, and then they this is what they default to. Oh, I bear you my testimony. And they'll tell you some emotional thing, how they feel a burning in the bosom, that they read this thing and and that when they read this, they just feel that this is the right thing in the Book of Mormon and this is the truth and it just sounds right. It's basically saying, I like how it sounds. You know, well, what if a person says, and this is is what some people are doing right now as they go into Christian bookstores. They get a Bible, they read this one. They read this one, they read this one, and they go, I like how that one sounds. Well, okay, then it must be right. If you like how it sounds, it must be right, huh? No, the question is whether I like how it sounds, which one was accurate? Who did this one? What did they use? How are they translating? Who are these guys who did this one? Who cares if it makes you feel good or you like how it sounds? Which one is right? And it goes for this one, too. All right, so that's a bad reason. What are other bad reasons? Well, the other ones are different. That's not good logic. You know, you could be doing something wrong and look at other people and say, well, they're all different, so I must be right. It's just not good logic to say stuff like that. Um, The question is, which is accurate? Why? Why are other Bibles different? Now sometimes, again, I'll be honest, sometimes other Bibles in places in the Bible are different because they might just have some synonymous words that are basically about equal, but in a lot of other places they're different because they did a different translation technique, or they translated from a different family of Greek texts than the King James Version used, and so it read differently. That's why they're different. So if somebody says, well, they're just different, well, why are they different? All right, Uh, well, I was told to, You know, a lot of people are told to read the Douay Version Catholic Bible or the Book of Mormon or the New World Translation for the Jehovah's Witnesses, and they just go with it. Listen, as kids and teenagers, you need to do what you're told. And as parents, as we tell our kids to do what we tell them, we need to insert logic and reason as they go along, else when they get to where they don't have to do what they're told, they're like, I was never told why to do this, so I'm just going to shake it off now. But when you say, well, you know, Oh, Pastor Henry, he just said grab a King James Bible, so I'm just doing what I'm told. never told me why, but he said to get one, so I'm just doing as I'm told. That's you know, you know, we need to dig a little bit. The Bible says, 1 Thessalonians 5 21, prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. Now don't be a don't be a snarky, you know, smart aleck kid with your parents. You need to do what your parents tell they see as you get older that you, okay, I'm going to give you a little reason for this, and maybe it'll help you. That way, you can grab onto what I'm telling you a little more. But if you don't, you still need what I'm saying until you're older and you can make your own decisions. But as it relates with us right now, as people who are in church have a good Bible, why? Why? What? What makes it good? All right. So here's there's really. Why use this Bible version that we're talking about? Here's purely some strong reasons, and it goes from the strongest right here to here to here, and then we'll go on another mess. Well, then another message we will have some other reasons that are kind of secondary to that. But I want you to see this. This is something that, this is the Pastor Henry's biggest beef and a lot of people's biggest beef with other Bibles is they come from, a, this one comes from better ancient texts. In other words, it's not like, okay, okay, Thomas Nelson publisher or Zondervan or whoever the Bible Christian, they, they make good books, but some of these Bible publishers, are like, you know, we want to do a new Bible version. You know when they decide to do a new Bible version? They have to go, they have to go back and make a choice. Are we going to use the critical text, which was recently discovered in Westcott and Nessel Nestle Allen's got his 27th edition of that? Or are we going to use the traditional texas receptus that has been used that was used 400 years ago which one and they always have to make a choice of two different greek texts that read a little different they choose and i'm telling you nearly all newer translations come from this gr- critical text that reads a little different i'm not saying there's no gospel in there i'm saying it's different and i thought every word of god matters Okay, so we're going to look at this. We're going to spend a little more time on this. This is another reason the translators used a better translation method. It was more of a formal equivalent. It was called formal equivalence. It's more of a literal approach to translating. And then for me as a pastor, I'm realizing that this helps provide our local church with a reliable standard. So it helps keep us unified. Helps keep us unified. So here's what I want to do. Let's look at this thing right here. I want you to un- grasp what I'm going to show you cuz this will help you understand the difference between Pastor saying the critical text and the Texas receptus or the received text. Again, what I'm talking about there are Greek family Greek manuscript families that you get your at least your New Testament from in your Bible, okay? Let's back up and you got to get this concept that'll help you. How were the original autographs multiplied? Okay, so here's the first century you had Mark writing the Gospel of Mark, and Matthew, and Luke, and John, and Luke wrote the book of Acts, and Paul had several epistles, and Peter had several epistles, and John had some more epistles, and Jude, and etc. You had all these first century um, New Testament books. They wrote it, and it had an original manuscript, and they sent it to the churches in Asia, and to Ephesus and the... The churches in Galatia and Corinthians and, and Romans and all that, and so there's these original manuscripts. Well, what happened? Well, they, they, the local churches copied them and copied them and copied them, and they were written originally in Greek. And so what happened is you have some copies. Now, I'm, not, I'm giving you a time. I'm throwing these numbers out as an example to see how things got copied and transmitted over time. Copied, copied, these yellow, this yellow represents basically what the original manuscripts were saying. He had copies and copies and copies, and, and over time, you know, they keep copying over a hundred years. We, you know, they're, they're copying and copying them, and then, wait a minute, that's kind of an odd copy. Somebody discovered, this is a different, this copy right here is a little different, it reads a little different. This book of... Uh, this mark, this mark is a little different, it's missing the last half of chapter 16, this in the book of Acts, that's a little different. And So they, what happens is, is as local churches are copying, they realize, oh, wait a minute, we saw that church's copy of Mark and we saw this church's copy of Mark and all the other churches that copy of Mark say this, but this one has a weird thing at the end where half of the chapter is missing. And it's kind of an odd copy. It didn't, I don't think that was like that. The previous churches for the last hundred years. So what they do, those odd copies, they get thrown away, or sometimes they think they're getting thrown away, and somebody just sets it aside and it finds its place on a bookshelf somewhere. And it's not really used. Meanwhile, copies are happening, and more as time goes by, there's more copies happening. And more copies. Oh, wait a minute, more copies are happening, but wait a minute. Original manuscripts are perishing. They're not going to last forever. I mean, even if they laminated them back then, would still wear out. I mean, you know, they're not going to last forever. So you have, this represents basically what we'd say that is the, where the Textus Receptus came from. It came from this stream of manuscripts that basically the churches were using, the non-Catholic churches were using. And as time went by, again, as I said, there was copies, and some of them disappeared as more are being multiplied. And then again, oh, man, that That was kind of an odd reading that we read there in in the book of Acts, and there was a verse missing. So some churches would recognize, I think, "This this is kind of an odd reading, and so they would set it aside or throw it away. And I'm not saying this would happen with only one copy. It might be several, but they would notice something's not right. All all our churches are they have scriptures that are reading this way, but this one this seems odd, and, and it came from an area where there really wasn't the very many local churches. And so they would set it aside and then more copies, excuse me, back up, more copies are being made, and as more copies are being made, again, older, if you wanted to have your hands on something, I want to touch what John's manuscript was of the book of Revelation. Sorry, it perished somewhere. I know, sometimes the Catholics would have loved to have grabbed it and put it behind a glass case so you could kiss it and have something, I don't know, some superstitious thing. No, 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 those manuscripts are... You know, if we had the original manuscripts, people would worship them. I mean, I'm just... I'll just say, that's probably... that's my opinion. People would just be like, ooh, you know, and so we don't. So they perish over time. So you notice how we started out with a bunch of copies over here. As time progresses and as the church is making history... They can't. They can't go back. Say of these guys in the 500, 600s and be like, man, I sure wish we had John's original manuscripts and Paul's. They're just. We don't. All we can go back to is three hundred, and and old grandpa so and so's got a copy of it. Well, you know what? Somebody else would probably tell the guy, listen, the church has been faithful copying its 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 copies, and so we've been we've been faithful custodians, and we can't keep them forever. So what's happened is this: they perish. But more copies keep being made, and they're multiplying. And this is what the church is using. As time goes by, let me back up. So here's what I want to say. This represents what the church was using. And I say the separatist church, a lot of Baptists and separatists, that is, non-Catholics, even Protestants were using this. And when there was kind of an odd reading, it would be set aside, and sometimes it would be destroyed, sometimes it would just be stored. And what's happened later is people dig some digging. Like, oh, I found in Egypt this really old manuscript and another really old one at a monastery in Sinai. And I found another. And they found manuscripts that they really, look at, isn't that cool? Hey, if you found a manuscript that's really old, that must be the most accurate one. It's older than these. But wait a minute, who was using it? And why was it set aside? Ah, so let's talk about that a minute. So we're going to talk about, again, clarify the difference, the received text. So what this means is basically that family of manuscripts that are um, that we showed on that illustration. And this represents that other one that was kind of set aside. They're different. They're older. They're dated older. But they're a little different. So here's here's what we found. And we've gone over some of this. The received text is the basis for the King James Version New Testament. The critical text is the basis for most modern versions. By the way, the New King James Version blends both of these. They take a little and a little bit from here, and they try to blend it. The received text, the reading that we end up getting and seeing in our English. Bibles represents 95% of all, if they could say, we want to gather all of the Greek manuscripts that you can find ancient, the ones that are from the 1100 or even the ones from 200 and we gather them all together if you were to do a comparison that's what they say, of course I haven't read them all, this is what my study have said has found is that basically it represents 95% the amount of them represents 95% of all manuscripts that are found. This critical text that the newer versions come from is based on less than 50 manuscripts. Based on less than 50 of them. And again, those 50, they're a little older. Whoops. Those 50 have a lot of variations between them. More, I should say, than the then the this family of manuscripts there's less variation in the reading this the received text family of manuscripts it comes from regions where the original churches were so not only is this a this and this a kind of a number of manuscript comparison and a reading comparison it's a regional comparison these tended to be found in, they call it Byzantium, which is where Antioch was, first uh, really strong missionary church in Acts 13, in Asia Minor, in Israel, and a few in Rome. Uh, that's where the regions of the text, that one came from. This one is primarily in Egypt. These texts, these 50 manuscripts, or less than, Primarily found in Egypt, there was a few in Sinai and one in, a few in Israel, I think. There was no, there was no original autographs of any, of any apostles never wrote anything from Egypt or to any, to any church in Egypt, not that Egypt didn't need churches. This family of manuscripts, you tend to find those manuscripts dispersed worldwide These were recently dispersed. You don't see this. It didn't go anywhere. This critical text, it didn't go that hardly anywhere. Who is using this? Baptists, Protestants, the Separatists, the non-Catholics were using the received text. This was just really out of use until the last 150 years or so. Now, okay, let's pause a second before I get to that last point. What did God say about His Word? He said a lot of things, but one of the things He said is, I will preserve it. Thou shalt keep them, O Lord. Thou shalt preserve them from this generation forever. In other words, His Word is going to be in every generation. Not that every person in every generation gets to see every Word of God but that his word, every one of his words, is available in, a, in a, any particular generation. So at this point, it makes you think, wait a minute, this one had manuscripts that were out of use, hidden in a monastery, some of them hidden in Egypt, and nobody was really using them until the last 150 years when a couple of um, crit, uh, textual critics discovered him and some others in the late eight, mid to late 1800s. So this supports the concept of God preserving his word. He's preserved it. His people are using it. His sheep hear his voice, and they're following him in that. And this one, it seems to conflict with the idea of preservation. So that gives... Okay, so you say... All right, Pastor Henry. So this Bible it has a little different English, but you're saying this Bible, one of the reasons to use it is because, in particular, the New Testament, it is based on reliable, a more reliable Greek text. Yes, this is based on this a text that came with these with this quality of it. People were using it. There's verses. I'm not going to get into all of them, but this tends to leave out. Like there's a, you can get a newer version, and it might they might put in the verses, but they'll put a footnote. This is really not in most manuscripts. Leave out half of the chapter of Mark 16. Uh, there's a verse in the book of Acts where it talks about Philip. Philip's going with the, he's uh, in the chariot, and he's talking to the Ethiopian eunuch. And the Ethiopian eunuch is learning the gospel from Isaiah, and the Ethiopian eunuch says to Philip look, there's water right there. What, what doth hinder me to be baptized? And if you were to be faithful to what this is, most of these manuscripts read, in which some of the footnotes in the newer Versions put, Philip would say, let's go baptize him. Get out of his chariot, and he went and baptized him. Wait a minute, he asked the question. What was his question? What doth hinder me to be baptized? If I were to go to the newer Version, I, I, would, I would think that Philip just took him out of the... Chariot and went down and baptized him without answering the question. But it leaves a verse out. This doesn't leave the verse out because I believe God originally intended it. Philip says, If thou believest with all thine heart thou mayest, you can't be baptized unless you're really a believer. And he said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then he went down and baptized. So it's just a little sample of how they left out a... Crucial verse, um, so let me go back to this. So I'm trying to give us a few examples that help you understand that you know. I guess what I'm trying to say is we're not dumb for using this. It's not that in the in the English like these and thous and. It has loveth and instead of loves, you know, some of that can, some of that's a little different, but all in all, it's more accurate. They used, a, I'll just say it again, they used a better translation method. They, The King James translators wanted to read the Hebrew and the Greek and they wanted to carry it over as literal as possible into English. Sometimes, some of the newer translations, not all of them, um, but some of them will just kind of paraphrase it and that's not it, here's the thing it's okay for me if I if I paraphrased you if you didn't if you uh, um, you know if, if you expect me to translate word for word and I don't that's offensive but if you want me to just tell somebody the gist of something that's okay but with God he says he has every word every word is valuable to him and it's almost like this. There's a part of me that wants to be like this, as a you know, there's a part of me that wants to be like, you know what, what is the gist of what is the gist of what God says? Okay, that's cool. I got it, man. Cool, that's cool. Give me the give me the hurry up and tell me, because I'm a I'm an impatient American, summarized thing of it. But that's fine if I have that attitude. But you know what? If I'm gonna translate, I have to say, where's God's level of respect? God says every word needs to be conveyed. Now, sometimes I've told you, like in Hebrew, there might be one Hebrew word and it takes four English words to describe it. Or one Greek word and it takes you know several English words to describe it. But at least you're saying, you're bringing it over, saying this is what God said. It took four of our English words to tell you, but this is what He said. So they used a, they had a more literal approach. And then as a pastor, this helps me. I like to just for us to have a reliable standard. Let's look at a couple verses, and, and we'll try to wrap this up here. Go to let's just go to Philippians three sixteen. This is just a sample verse. There's several verses in the New Testament about Paul basically saying that. He tells the church, hey, be unified. Be of the same mind. Get on the same page, everybody. That's what he says, basically. Philippians 3.16, he says exactly this. Nevertheless, whereunto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. He's saying let us walk by the same rule, let us mind the same thing. And so here's what I'm saying in a more of a practical way as a pastor, and I've said it before. Sometimes people come, and they might have, and maybe some of you might like, you know, I got this other Bible version, Pastor, I like to read it, and I like to read this one, and, and, but I bring my King James Bible because I know you preach from it. Okay, fine. But what I'm saying is this, at the end of the day, what did God say in English? You might read it over here, and, well, I like how this version says. I like how this one says. Okay, that's nice. But what, which one are we going to go with for a final say? What's the final answer? For instance, this is what we have, and I think it's relia- It's a reliable standard, um, lest there be confusion. Sometimes, if you have too many standards, you have too many um, voices. It's confusing. Most of us I used to. I used to use the example. You know, the man with many watches never knows what time it is. But most, it's like that doesn't work anymore because you just have your phone. It's automatically set. Right. Boom. Remember how I used to actually have to, oh, wait, my watch is what time do you have? Wait, i would not to adjust my watch here. You know, that's, those days are gone. We're just like, what does the phone say? It's based on the satellite, you know, or whatever it is. But if you do have several standards of different times, then uh, you never really, what time is it? Well, it would be nice if it was 6.05. Maybe it would be nice if it was 5.45. What time is it? I just want to know what time it really is. And so that's what I'm saying here. Is uh, trying to give us some encouragement and some reason, like, "Hey, this is a good Bible we got, and God's blessed it, and uh, we have good reasons for using it." And I'm not, and I'll just say this: I don't say it doesn't need to be clarified. I don't think it needs to be corrected, but it does need to be clarified sometimes. Sometimes you go, like, "Man, what does that evil concupiscence mean again?" Oh, concupiscence! Pastor said that on Wednesday, on Sunday night, and I already forgot it. Pull up your Webster's app. You can look, you can have a Webster's Dictionary app and it'll define King James Bible words. It, not, it didn't used to be that way 15 years ago. You'd have to go get a thick Webster's 1828 dictionary or a Strong's Concordance and look it up and what's that number? And they gotta look in the back, and you have to fumble. Man, you could just pull up on your phone a Webster, Merriam Webster's app, and find the definition of King James Bible words. So don't say we can't understand it. We, we got some help here. So, Let's stop right there. Let's thank God that He's privileged us. We're so privileged to have a Bible and that we would believe it, read it, live it, give it, and it would have an effect on our life.